Thank you for listening to Christian Challenge at K-State's podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, follow us on Instagram or visit our website. Hope you enjoy this episode. Well, my name's Jim, and it is great to be with you all here tonight. I'm excited to dive into what we've got tonight. We have been going through, just like Lauren and Micah said, we've been walking through this series called Behold, where we have been examining some really important statements that were made by Jesus, uh, found in the gospel, the book of John. And we've, we've looked at a number of different phrases that Jesus has said, and each of these phrases kind of allude back to the name of God, which when translated is, it simply means I am. And Jesus kind of expands and clarifies that name by kind of adding a few components to it. We've looked at Jesus say, I am the bread of life and I am the good shepherd. And last week, Nate talked about this idea that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And tonight, we're going to look at John 14. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles to John 14. And we're going to look at another statement made by Jesus, a really important one, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And to begin, as you, as you get your Bibles open, I want, you to, I want to invite you to think about a question. I want you to think about this idea. Have you ever been lost? Have you ever, can you think of a time in your life that you've been legitimately lost? And it's, it's not actually super common, I think, in this day and age uh, with cell phones and Google Maps. Uh, you can usually find your way out of any situation you're in. But think about, if you haven't had a, a moment like this, think about uh, what it would feel like to, maybe you're out hiking in, in the wilderness and your phone dies and you get kind of turned around and, and you don't know where you are. And you're alone it's getting dark, like what, what would that feel like to legitimately be completely lost? I, I, I would imagine that fear kind of is one of the first things that comes to mind there, that, that fear kind of grips you in, in a profound way when you're lost like that. And we can be literally lost, like lost in the woods, but there's also kind of this sense of being lost in other ways. We can experience all kinds of lostness in other situations in life. When our, when our expectations kind of get dashed to pieces, or when there's a, a, a meaningful and significant loss in our life, somebody passes away, or, or just in general, just when things don't work out like we had planned or imagined. I wonder if you've felt that before. I, wonder if, I would imagine some of you are feeling that today. You're feeling kind of lost. I can, I can recall that feeling of lostness pretty vividly in my own life. Um, a couple of years ago... Um, my wife and I, we found out that we were expecting our third child. We found out we were pregnant, and we were so excited. We were also overwhelmed. We already had two little kids, and so it was just kind of overwhelming to think about. Man, we were pumped. 
we were looking forward to this. We were so excited. We were counting down the days. And as the weeks kind of clicked on, we were just getting more and more excited. We were thinking about names and all kinds of things. And then there was this moment that things shifted. I can remember this so clearly. Uh, things shifted. We, we, we kind of had this moment where we, we found out that we lost our baby girl. And, yeah, we, our baby died. And, man, I, like, can still feel it. The air was sucked out of the room. I didn't, I didn't know which way was up. I, I, I literally, all I can remember is I just couldn't get off the floor for, like, weeks. It was awful. Our expectations were shattered. All that we had been looking forward to fell apart, and we, we were just a wreck. We felt like we couldn't breathe, and I, I honestly just felt like there was a boulder like hanging off my chest. I like hunched. I just like couldn't stand up straight. I felt totally lost. And there was a, a time too in the Gospels, when Jesus' disciples felt something like this, when they felt lost, like things were just totally flipped upside down. You see, they, they had been following Jesus for about three years. They'd seen him do incredible things. He'd opened up the eyes of the blind. He'd healed the sick. He'd, he'd taught crowds of people, amazing teaching from God that was so compelling. He'd multiplied food instantly to feed thousands. He'd even raised a dead man back to life. It seemed like nothing was impossible for him. It just felt like the roof was blown off what was considered possible. And they had come to believe that Jesus was the one that the Old Testament had foreseen. He was the one who was promised by God. He was the promised king who would tear down oppression and create a lasting peace in the world. And, and at the height of all of this, at the height of his fame, Jesus headed towards Jerusalem, the capital city. And at, at the time he went, it was one of the most famous holidays of their culture, the Passover. And so there were thousands and thousands of people gathered into this city. And they all had heard of Jesus or experienced Jesus. They were anticipating his arrival. And, and they were just wondering, I mean, was this... Was this it? Was he finally going to come to the city as king? Would he finally do what was promised, what, what was necessary to lead God's people to lasting freedom that they'd longed for? And here's what happened. So he entered the city in a way that just seemed to confirm all of their hopes. Because there was this ancient prophecy in the Bible that said that when a descendant of King David rode into Jerusalem riding humbly on a donkey, that the time of salvation was at hand. That that was the sign, that was the, the tip-off, that things were about to change. There would be a peace and that, that would reign from sea to sea. He would be enthroned and, and the crowds were gathering because they were anticipating this moment. They lined the road as Jesus entered into the city and here he comes 
riding on a donkey. This was it. He was fulfilling that sign. And they were throwing their coats down and their palm branches. They were doing everything. They were just praising God because this was the moment. And as the time for the, the big holiday was approaching, Jesus, he, he gathered his closest followers together for a meal. His, his 12 closest followers, he said, let's, let's gather together for, for just a, an important time together. And, and this seemed to be like the eve of the revolution. It, it seemed like, okay, now's the moment. Here we go. Maybe we're going to hear the plan or what, what's, what's going to happen here? So that he gathers them together. And then things shift. As they ate, a strange, just a heaviness kind of comes over the room. The text says that, that Jesus felt troubled in spirit. Something was up. And then he, dis, then he told the disciples three things. First was that one of them, one of his closest followers was going to betray him. Second, was that he was about to leave them and that they aren't going to know where he's going and they're not going to be able to follow him. And third, was that the leader of their follower group, Peter, was going to deny that he even knew Jesus. Things were about to get bad, so bad that Peter would deny that he knew Jesus. Why is it like, this is not what they expected. This is not how the story was supposed to go. I mean, what about all that they'd been working towards? What about, what about the prophecy and the revolution? What, what about salvation and throwing off of oppression? Confusion. Disillusionment, fear, dashed expectations, and an unknown and, frankly, a dark future. How are they to make sense of this? And, and right in that moment, this is where our passage cuts in. So, John 14, verses 1 through 5. Jesus says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So Jesus starts off with some words of comfort. In the midst of their confusion and their dashed expectations, Jesus tells them to believe in God and believe in him as well. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. And this, this word believe, it's so crucial. Nate talked about it last week. It's kind of a theme that runs through John. And, and this word believe, it does not just simply mean have kind of a mental agreement or believe something exists. 
Jesus wasn't telling his disciples, just believe that God exists and believe that I exist. That doesn't really make any sense. They didn't need convincing that God exists. They knew it. They'd seen all that Jesus had done, and they certainly didn't need convincing that Jesus existed. He was standing right there in front of them. This invitation to believe was an invitation to trust him fully. In fact, to entrust themselves to him, to fully trust in him. In the confusion, when the world seems upside down, when you are lost and you don't know what the next move is, Jesus invites us to entrust ourselves, our whole lives to him. And Jesus then begins explaining that he is leaving them in order to prepare a place for them. He starts by talking about his father's house and that has many rooms in it, and how after he leaves them, he, he would come back for them. I mean, what is, what's Jesus talking about? I mean, initially, this seems kind of random and cryptic. Well, when he talks about his father's house, he's referring to being in God the Father's presence forever. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about heaven. And Jesus is essentially saying that He is doing what he is doing to secure their eternal future. And if he's thinking about things that far in advance, then they have nothing to be troubled about. Jesus tells them that he goes to make these preparations for them. And what the disciples don't realize is that what he's referring to is his own death and eventually his resurrection and how those acts were going to prepare a place with God's, in God's presence for them. But strangely, Jesus says that they already know the way to where he is going. And this is where one of his disciples, Thomas, cuts him off for some clarification. And he says this in verse 5. He says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it's it's difficult to fully appreciate uh, all that Jesus is claiming in this moment. This This is really important. Jesus does not merely show us the way or know the way that leads to life. He is the way. And this, this is strange. This doesn't like make immediate sense right out the gate. Many, many throughout history have made claims to know the way to experience life. I mean, religious and political leaders or, or dietitians and personal trainers, authors and activists and advertisers. They, I mean, history is full of people who have claimed to know that they have found the secret. And if you just do what they did or follow their advice, then you will experience life and life to the full. But, but Jesus didn't say that here. In fact, he says, the way isn't a system or a program at all. He tells us that the way is a person. He says the way isn't a system, it's him in and of himself. 
Knowing Jesus intimately is to be on the way. Knowing Him, knowing Him personally and intimately, that's what it is to be on the way. And, and this idea, this might sound strange, but this, this idea reminds me of how a rowing team works. Do I, any rowers in the room? couple? Okay, a couple. Yeah, awesome. There's a handful of you. This, this idea reminds me of how a rowing team works. I imagine most of you are unfamiliar with how a rowing team works. So let me, let me enlighten you uh, straight from Wikipedia. So um, on a rowing team, you'll usually have two or four or eight rowers. Uh, so here's a, here's a picture of the 2016 U.S. women's eight-person rowing team. And you'll notice there's, there's eight rowers, and then there is a, there's a ninth person in the boat. Eight rowers, and then someone else. And they're not a freeloader. Um, this ninth person is actually really important. This ninth person is called a coxswain. And a coxswain is, is super important to the team for a number of reasons. So first of all, just get this idea in your mind. So the rowers, they're, they're sitting in the boat with their backs facing the front of the boat. So they, they, they aren't paying attention to the direction that the boat is going. And, and as they're rowing, if, if any one of them were to turn around to get a glimpse at the direction that they're going, to just you know, kind of get an idea of if they need to make any course corrections or if there's any obstacles ahead or if, if there's a boat that is coming up on them or anything like that, if they're to turn around, that could risk everything. Because best case scenario, they're going to get out of sync with the other rowers. They're not going to be in the right proper position to row. And, and worst case scenario, they could tip the boat because it could throw off the balance of the boat. All for just a mere, a mere glance, a quick look at what's ahead. And so that's, a, that's an issue, but a, a coxswain changes all of that. A coxswain sits in the boat and faces the direction that they are going. And a coxswain is kind of this coach in the boat that, that can kind of make the course corrections and the adjustments and help the team stay in sync. They can help the team know, okay, we're in for a long stretch, settle into a good rhythm, here we go. Or they can tell them when, okay, here we go, power 10, let's exert maximum energy for 10 strokes because we're about to overtake another boat. They, they can make adjustments based on where they're at in the race. They know exactly what to do. They are the ones that can strategize the entirety of the race. The coxswain is crucial. And the rowers fix their eyes and their attention and their undivided trust on this person. Even though they can't see where they're going, they're trusting in this person who can. It's a really good image for how we walk with Jesus. Often we don't know where we're going. We, we, we have no idea what's around the corner. Jesus says, I am the way. But it's, it's even more than that. That analogy helps, but it, it doesn't even go the full distance because the coxswain still kind of depends on the rowers to, to win the race, but Jesus, he went the full distance. He did the whole work. He did everything. He left nothing for us to do in order to accomplish the completion of the race. He does all that's necessary 
for us to experience the full life in God. Nothing remains for us to do. He did it all. And now, of course, Jesus taught us the way to live rightly before God. And he taught us the best way to experience life in our day-to-day life. But when Jesus says that he is the way, he is telling us that none of those behaviors earn us a seat in God's presence. He paid for that in full. But Jesus doesn't even just stop at saying that he is the way. He presses it even further. He could have left it at just saying, I am the way. But here he states that not only is he the way, but also the truth and the life. And I just think this is crazy. Jesus doesn't just merely show us the way. He is the way. He isn't just one who speaks the truth. He is the truth. And he does not merely show us how to find life. He is the life worth finding. Being the truth means that he reveals God purely and fully. When we look at Jesus, we see God. This is an undeniable claim of the book of John. In so many ways, this is one of the main things that we're beholding all semester in this series. Is that when we see Jesus, we see God. Jesus is God's full revelation of himself. This is unreal. God didn't just accomplish salvation for us behind a curtain in secret. He revealed himself to humanity. And the next few verses make this totally clear. Verse 7 says, Jesus says, If if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father? Sorry, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, Jesus still distinguishes himself here from God the Father. He, he says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He does not say, I am the Father and the Father is me. This, this, is, this is tricky. This is a, a hard mystery to behold, but it is amazing. God is unified in himself, and yet, according to the Bible, there are three distinct persons within God. The Father, the Son, who is Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And the main thing I want you to see here is that there is no division of character or motivation. Jesus says that if you've seen him, if you've seen what he is like and what motivates him and how great his love is, then you have seen what the Father is like. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And he is amazing. God revealed the truth of himself to us through Jesus, which is why Jesus can say he is the truth. And he can also say that he is 
the life. He is eternal life. He is the life we all long for in the deepest parts of our being. Every desire you have ever, ever had, every, every longing that you've ever felt, it all points to this reality, to the Jesus reality. When Jesus said that he is the life, he is saying that he has life in himself and everything else is just an echo or a substitute or a pointer to that reality. And he has that life that he can offer freely to all who come to him. But, but when we say life, when we're talking about, that's kind of a, a broad, ambiguous word. When, when we say life, what are we talking about? There, What life is Jesus offering in himself? And earlier we mentioned in the book of John, this word believe is kind of a, a theme that runs throughout it. And, and life is another theme that runs in John. In fact, the word life shows up 47 times in John. Here's some examples. John 1.4 says that in Jesus was life and the life was the light of men. John 3.16 says that whoever believes in Jesus won't die, but will have eternal life. John 10.10 says that Jesus came that his followers may have life and have it abundantly. And this idea of eternal life in, in John gets more defined in John 17. Jesus says, and this is eternal life. Here it is. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not merely life that goes on forever and ever. It is that, but it is so much more. It is abundant life. It is satisfying life. It's an experience of, of love and joy and peace through knowing and relating deeply with God the Father and Jesus Christ. It's contentment. It's, it's gratitude in all circumstances. And it's a life that begins in the here and now, not just in the age to come. And man, that's good news. Now, that being said, it's not just an idea that is, that's naive that says that nothing bad will ever happen to me. Or even that if something bad happens to me, I'm just somehow going to miraculously not care about it or something like that. No, Jesus, Jesus actually promised us that in this world we would experience hardship and suffering and trouble. But the life that he offers anchors our satisfaction in a different reality, the, the reality of Jesus. Knowing Jesus and relating to him deeply in all of your life, that's what leads to the eternal life that Jesus is offering. He said at the very beginning of our passage that he is going to the cross and eventually to resurrection itself to prepare access to that kind of life that experience of God. And this, boy, this is a critical element of this, these few verses that we're looking at tonight. Jesus says he is the way. He is the only way to eternal life. 
says, no one comes to the Father except through him. And, and man, this is, this is a wildly unpopular claim to make in this day and age. But there is, there is no getting around it in this passage. Jesus said that if you want to experience eternal life, the life of heaven in the here and now, and eventually life in heaven after our time here on earth, then the only path, the only way to do so is to trust in him fully and to know him and surrender to him with every area of your life. Jesus is the only way. There are no other paths, no alternate routes, and no shortcuts. As hard as this may be to hear, all religions do not lead up the same mountain. The way of Jesus is not merely one option among many. Jesus claims to hold the exclusive offer of life. And that no one will come to experience eternal life, the life in the Father, apart from Him. And and if you read through the book of John, this is not the first time this idea has come up. It comes up repeatedly. Jesus says over and over again that there are two options. You believe in Jesus Christ and you will find life. Or you choose not to do so. And you will experience death and condemnation. This this is so hard. (laughs) I I get it. This is a tough pill to swallow. Um, But this this is what Jesus said about himself. We've got to reckon with that. He is the only way to experience eternal life, both in the age to come and in the here and now. And there's part of all of us, right, that, that just kind of longs for a different route. We long for, for a shortcut, a path that doesn't require absolute allegiance. It doesn't require that amount of surrender and sacrifice. We, a lot of us are inclined towards all kinds of shortcuts that promise that, Right? I was just kind of thinking through a, a, a sampling of these kinds of shortcuts. Here's, here's just a handful that you could think about. First, there's, there's this promised shortcut of the ideal life, the ideal life shortcut. If, if we can just manage to, to get married, get a house, land the job that has the good income, have a couple of kids, then, surely then, we will experience a fulfilling life. Once we get those boxes checked, we'll be good to go. Or, or there's the acceptance shortcut. Our hope is in people thinking highly of us, seeing us as valuable and worthy. Surely, surely that would lead to satisfaction, as long as people think well of me. There's also the accomplishment shortcut. If we can just make an impact or do something great and meaningful or be a part of something significant, that would give our life meaning and the Fulfillment. Of course, there's, there's the pleasure shortcut. It's st- extremely appealing for many of us. If we, if we have enough just time to chill, if we have 
the right games to play, if we've got some delicious food, sit in front of Netflix and just bask in that moment, soak it in. If we have enough sexual experiences, man, okay, that is where life is found. Surely that's where it's going to be. And then maybe on the opposite end of the spectrum, there's the religious shortcut. Life is found in following the rules and fulfilling our religious commitments and being good, doing the right thing, jumping through the right hoops. If I can just do that, if I can follow the system and not manage to screw it up, then then that's where I'll experience satisfaction in life. That's when I'll feel good enough. And here's, here's the last one that I think is particularly dangerous. It's, it's the life hack shortcut. This is where we try to walk with Jesus, but with, without the sacrifice, without the surrender. Maybe we, we look to, to a podcast or a sermon or a book that, that will kind of do it for us so we don't actually have to, to walk intimately with Jesus on our own. And in our own life. Maybe we'll just go to challenge or to church or life group and just get a little, a little spiritual boost from that. A little emotional high. And, and, and then I can feel good about my life without, without actually having to, to walk with Jesus. But Jesus knows none of these shortcuts are strong enough or satisfying enough. Our hearts were made to be satisfied by our creator. No other routes will work. If we want to take the way that leads to life, it means we must personally walk deeply with Jesus. The things that look like shortcuts, these aren't shortcuts. They're dead ends. They're not going to work out. They don't lead to life. And what I find just absolutely crazy is that Jesus is explaining all of this about the way to experience life and that he has life in himself and that he can offer it freely to everyone. He's explaining this whole scene is happening in the context when his disciples' hopes are dashed to pieces. When they're bewildered, when their world is upside down. Jesus doesn't just simply tell us that he is the way when things are going pretty good. He tells us he is the way when things are absolutely backwards, when we're confused, when we're experiencing loss, when we're hurt and disappointed and angry and broken. He tells us he is the way when we've lost our baby. He tells us he is the way when we don't get the internship or the job that we were hoping for and we have no idea what our future holds. He tells us he's the way when our hopes are crushed. He says, trust in me. I, I will walk with you through all the pain and all the struggle. I've actually finished the race. The, the artwork for this week is a, is a beautiful image that depicts this. This was designed by Andrew Luttrell. 
Where are you at, Andrew? There he is. And, uh, man, this is awesome. I love this. I've been just kind of staring at it for a few days now. And, and here's what Andrew had to say about it. He said, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The one in whom we live and move and have our being. This scene depicts Jesus, our king and shepherd, leading us, the, the child, along the way to the water of life by the light of truth. The edges of the path and the sun and the well are outlined by words from my personal reflections on Christ's role as the way, truth, and life. The clothing of both Jesus and the child are important in this scene. Jesus' robe is brighter than the sun. And he wears a purple sash and a crown to reinforce his kingship. And the child is clothed in all red to represent the blood of Christ shed in order to bring him to the water of life. Praise be to the king who leads us by the hand in his perfect love. I love that. Trusting Jesus like a child. Looking to him for life. He leads us by the hand. This is what we were made for. To wrap up, band, you can go ahead and make your way up here. Um, to wrap up, I want to invite you to, to behold Jesus. To behold Jesus as the way, truth, and life. And to do this, I, I have two things I want you to consider. First, as we said earlier, Jesus claims that he is the exclusive path to knowing God and to experience life. If you have not acknowledged Jesus as Lord, I want to I strongly encourage you to consider his claim that he's making about being the way, truth, and life tonight. He says that no one will come to the Father except through him. And that by believing and trusting in him, that's what will lead to life, eternal life, to all who put their trust in him and follow him. And if, if you've been thinking about whether or not you want to do that, I just want to welcome you, invite you, please come, come talk to somebody about it. Come talk to me. Come talk to a life group leader that you know, or, or there's a, that QR code, they'll scroll it at the end of the service. If there's a QR code, you can fill out a connection card and just check the box. I want to talk to somebody about salvation in Jesus. Now, all that's going to do, we're just, we just want to, one of our staff will get together with you, we'll sit down for a cup of coffee and just talk with you about that decision and what it entails and what that means. We'd love to help you just think through it. It's a really important decision. We'd love to help you process it. I want to encourage you, just, just consider what Jesus is claiming about himself here. And then, then this is for all of us. I, I want to invite you to consider the shortcuts that you are inclined to take to experience life and to find hope. In the search for satisfaction 
in life? What, what paths are you trying to take? Or when life is upside down and your experiences or, or your expectations are just dashed to pieces, what shortcuts do you try to take in order to kind of put things back together and fix the situation? Do you, do you turn to and honestly trust Jesus as your way? Or, or are you looking for a different path? Are you trying to make things work your way? And I just want to say, man, what if just as a group, what is, could we just identify what those shortcuts are for each of us? And could we just, just reject all other paths? And could we just say tonight, Jesus, you are the way, and I choose you. I want to follow you. I trust you, even when I can't see where I'm going. Let's identify those and reject them and ask God to help us to trust in his way. When, when my wife and I lost our daughter, we were confused we were in pain and grief, and our, our world felt like it was collapsing. But even in the darkness, Jesus was the way when we felt lost. It didn't, knowing that didn't make the pain go away, but relating to him in our confusion and pain was our way through it. By, by prayerfully and honestly, voicing our pain and confusion to Jesus, we were then able to believe in his nearness to us and compassion towards us. And we also began to slowly trust that he would guide us through the pain. He was the way through, and he held our hands the whole way, even when we struggled to believe he was there. Jesus promised that we'd experience trouble in this world, yet he also promised that if we put our trust in him, he would be with us in it. He says, take heart. I have overcome the world. Which means peace does not come from a set of circumstances. It comes from knowing Christ in the midst of all things and relating to him in all situations. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to believe this about you. But we just confess that it's hard. It's hard to trust you as our way. Lord, would you, would you help us to believe that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Both the life to come in heaven and the life of heaven in our everyday life here. Help us to identify the shortcuts. Help us to deliberately choose your path.